outside when you said you said you needed me I was looking at myself I was blind I could not see Boy tries hard to be a man Mother takes him by his hand He stops to think, he starts to cry Oh, why? If you walk away, walk away I walk away, walk away I will follow If you walk away, walk away I walk away, walk away I will When they pulled the four walls down I was looking through the window I was lost, I am found When you walk away, walk away I walk away, walk away I will follow If you walk away, walk away I walk away, walk away I will follow Jesus, we think that you want, us to, you want to take us somewhere, so please now, through the power of your Spirit, help us to follow. Amen. Good morning. For the last uh, several weeks, I think three weeks, we've been looking at the prologue to the Gospel of John, and we've been talking about the Word, the Logos, the reason that was with God and is God, the creator and sustainer of all, the very foundation and fabric of all reality. In verse nine of chapter one, we read that he was coming into the world. 
And last week, we began talking about John's view of the world, that there are two worlds, two kingdoms, two ages, two times, our time and time beyond time. So the eternal is invading time. The kingdom of God is invading the dark kingdoms of this world. The Logos has become flesh and is invading in the form of a man. John the Baptist, greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, tells us that he is unworthy to untie this man's shoes. He cries out that this man will baptize with Holy Spirit. He will baptize with fire. John 1, 3, 1, 34, and I have seen and have borne witness, cries John, that this is the Son of God. You see, John the Apostle is preparing his readers for an invasion, an invasion of utterly epic proportions the apocalypse. And as you know, John is the author of the apocalypse, that is the revelation. In fact, a few years ago, I wrote and published a, a book on it, but, but John has set the stage for an invasion. And in the next verse, the invasion begins. How do you invade the world?
Well, like I was saying, John has set the stage for the invasion of this world by the kingdom of our God. John 1, verse 34, where we left off, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Next verse. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, check it out, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you guys want? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, uh, Rabbi, um, well, uh, um, where are you staying? He said to him, well, come check it out. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed. They hung out with him that day, because you know it was like about four o'clock. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that seems just a tad anticlimactic. You know what I mean? You may think to yourself, well, dang, I could do that. And that's an interesting thought, because later in the Gospel of John, Jesus will say, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Whatever the case, this is the long-awaited, prophetically foretold invasion of the dark planet, the apocalypse of Jesus. And so we ought to ask, how do we um, explain such an anticlimactic invasion, such an unapocalyptic apocalypse? We'll think this through with me for a little bit. In verse 18... John wrote, no one has seen God. The only begotten Son from the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Exegeomai. Like like we said, Jesus exegetes God. If that were a noun, in Greek, you might say it like this. Jesus is the apocalypsis. Jesus is the revelation of God. That's what apocalypse means, revelation And Jesus is from the kolpos, the bosom of the Father. It's where you place your ear right here to hear a person's heartbeat. Jesus is the logos, the rhythm of God become flesh. The way music in the air becomes a dance. And perhaps that is how he makes God known. Perhaps the invasion looks a little more like this. Remember this? Oh, no. sorry. Oh, no. It's a feeling, a heartbeat. Google. 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 Don't try so hard. Google. Google. Close your eyes. What I mean is perhaps the invasion is an invasion of the heart. And perhaps no invasion is more apocalyptic than that. The word, the reason, for, of, and in all things invading a cold, dark human heart.
And perhaps we're all born with something like a cold, dark human heart. Well, little Mordecai was rambunctious. He was wild. Creation was his playground. The sun and the moon were like his toys until it was time to go to the synagogue and learn the word of God. John Shea tells his story. The night before his studies were to begin, his parents sat Mordecai down and told him how important the word of God was. Yet the next day, he never arrived at the synagogue. Instead, he found himself in the woods, swimming in the lake and climbing the trees. When he came home that night, the news had spread throughout the small village. Everyone knew of his shame. His parents were beside themselves. They did not know what to do. So they called in the behavior modificationist to modify Mordecai's behavior until there was no behavior of Mordecai that was not modified. Nevertheless, the next day he found himself in the woods, swimming in the lake and climbing the trees. So they called in the psychoanalyst who unblocked Mordecai's blockages so there were no more blocks for Mordecai to be blocked by. Nevertheless, he found himself the next day swimming in the lake and climbing the trees. His parents grieved for their beloved son. There seemed to be no hope. At the same time, the great rabbi visited the village. And the parents said, ah, perhaps the rabbi. So they took Mordecai to the rabbi and told him their tale of woe. The rabbi bellowed, leave the boy with me and I will have a talking with him. It was bad enough that Mordecai would not go to the synagogue. But to leave their beloved son alone with this lion of a man was terrifying. However, they came this far, and so they left him. Now Mordecai stood in the hallway, and the great rabbi stood in his parlor. He beckoned, boy, come here. Trembling, Mordecai came forward. And then the great rabbi picked him up and held him silently against his heart. His parents came to get Mordecai, and they took him home. The next day, he went to the synagogue to learn the word of God, and when he was done, he went to the woods, and the woods spoke the word of God. He swam in the lake, and the lake sang the word of God. He climbed the trees, and the trees danced the word of God, and Mordecai spoke the word of God, sang the word of God, danced the word of God. And Mordecai himself grew up to become a great man, People who were seized with panic came to him and found peace. People who were without anybody came to him and found communion. People with no access came to him and found a way. And when they came to him, he said, I first learned the word of God when the great rabbi held me silently against his heart. You see, the logos, which was all around him, invaded him and conquered his heart. Do you realize that in all those invasion clips I showed you at the start, not one heart was conquered? Not even one heart was changed. If anything, just hardened. We tend to think that Jesus wins because he has superior firepower. I mean, the same firepower as the world, just more of it, you know? And so that last clip, uh, Megiddo, the Omega Code 2, that, uh, that's one of those supposedly biblical end-time revelation movies. Did you notice that even in that clip, God's firepower looked pretty much exactly like the firepower of 
of the aliens in Independence Day and the War of the Worlds. God just had more of it. And because of it, Satan was forced to kneel. And scripture does say in three places, every knee will bow and give praise. But study those verses and you'll see it's real praise, freely given praise from the heart. From the heart. How do you conquer a heart? Well, I have a theory that Satan doesn't have knees and he, and he doesn't have a heart. But this is my point. God's fire does conquer hearts. It's a categorically different kind of fire. It's a holy fire. Paul said the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're, they're not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And read that in 2 Corinthians, and you see he's talking about hearts. Well, certainly God has superior firepower. I've seen him do stuff like that to Satan. Superior firepower, but it's not just superior in amount, it's categorically different in substance. It's holy, it's divine, it's apocalyptic. And now, check this out. According to church history and the evidence in the text, the John that wrote the gospel is the very same John that wrote the apocalypse. The apocalypse and the gospel are both the revelation of Jesus. One records his invasion from the perspective of heaven and the other from the perspective of this earth. So the invasion in John 1 is the same invasion that's described in the revelation. It's not that Jesus won't bring time to an end. In the end, he, he, he will. It's just that he's bringing it to an end all the time. And it's not that he won't one day melt all things with fire. It's just that this day he, he might baptize your heart and melt your heart with the very same fire. It's not that he won't conquer all things in the end. It's that he wants you to see him who is the end conquering all things right now. The word, the logos, from the bosom of the Father is revealing his victory now. In Revelation 19, John sees heaven opened. And the word in flesh, with eyes a flame of fire, riding a white horse and conquering the world, the armies of heaven in his train. I mean, maybe John is saying that when you speak the word, even now, you're in that army. And the writer is writing now, even now, here and now, invading now. And you may have noticed this if you've been reading John 1, studying along with us. John 1 is divided into six days. The seventh day, which John also calls the third day, is the miraculous wedding supper at Cana. The revelation, you know, is overlapping series of sevens culminating in the marriage supper of the Lamb. As we saw in Genesis, all time is a series of seven culminating in the new creation. You see, John 1 is the story of the eternal word invading time now. This is that, and that is this. You see, we think that one dude hanging out with another dude, talking word, is unimportant. For it to be important, you need workbooks and schedules and classes and degrees and programs and governments and armies and cool lasers and nuclear weapons. 
But John's telling us, no. That's all mist and vapor compared to the work, compared to the, the power of, of the word, the logos. If, if you want to change the world, you have to know the word, the logos, the rhythm. And then you've got to get close enough to folks that they can hear your heartbeat. It's called making disciples. And that's how Jesus invades this world. And he says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. So this is our invasion strategy too. Make disciples. This is how to invade the world. Number one, go for a walk. Verse uh, 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Like Jesus, enter another person's world and go for a walk. That's called incarnation, God incarnate. God incarnate, God in meat. He entered our world wearing our skin, talking our language, and you are to do the same for other people in their worlds. One Sunday at our church in California, the children's director had this great idea, and so she got a guy to dress up like Jesus and ride a donkey through the hallway of the children's department as the teachers all said to the kids, hey kids, look, it's Jesus. The kids were so terrified. <laughs> I mean, what kind of weird God would ride a donkey in a children's department? They were so terrified because this Jesus was so strange. I mean, Becky, maybe you even remember this. You were in that church. Gwen, the children's director, told me that one toddler was so traumatized they had to go to the sanctuary and pull out their parents to come help. One three-year-old told Gwen, I'm, I'm never saying my prayers again. They ran in terror from what they thought was Jesus. And they took comfort in the real Jesus. Jesus in meat. They all ran to Gwen and she held them tightly, silently against her heart, her kolpas, her bosom. See, Jesus wasn't in the donkey. He was incarnate in Gwen. Number one, enter another's world with Jesus in your heart. You, you don't even have to say anything. The word will manifest in your flesh like a dance and turn you into a walking sanctuary. So number one is go for a walk. Number two, when the time is right, ask questions. Next verse. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? What do you guys want? And they said to him, uh, um, uh, uh, where are you staying? You see, they don't really even know what they want. People don't know what they want. But you do. You know what they want. You just don't know the form of the question in that other person. So ask questions of their questions. The heart you see, is made for Jesus. So find their heart and listen to the form of the question in their heart, and this is the question. Where's Jesus? You know, he's the wine that every alcoholic craves. He's the communion that every sex addict desires. He's the bread for the hungry. He's water for the thirsty. He's peace for the anxious, grace for the guilty. He's even poor and needy because we're all looking for someone to love. 
He's the Logos, the reason for all things and every heart. But you must find a person's heart in order to share your heart and the beat in your heart. So number three, invite them to come and see. He said to them, come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. You know, there are 10 commandments. 10 is the number of fullness. It's the fullness of time, fullness of the old covenant. It's not 10 by accident. None of this is happening by accident, okay? It's like a conspiracy. And Jesus says, come and see. Come and see. You know, we don't know the Logos by dissecting the Logos. But we come to know the Logos more by like dancing with the Logos. It's not something that's so much taught as it is caught. People aren't argued into the kingdom but romanced and, and danced by the Logos in Karnos, in flesh. And the Logos is best revealed in those unscripted, unguarded movements and moments of the dance. I'm a Christian. I'm convinced because my father held me silently against his heart. And I'm a pastor because I watched his heart broken and bleeding in the unscripted moments and movements of the dance. You know, he actually discouraged me from becoming a pastor, but it was too late. He'd already discipled me with the rhythm of his heart. You know, you can't do that with many people. Jesus is God, and he did that with 12. And so I'm saying read books, listen to sermons, yet it's more important that you get close enough to another believer that you can hear their heart beating. House churches are just our way of trying to make that happen. So listen to me preach, but go to house church and find someone on whom you can lay your head and listen to their heartbeat. Jesus, in them. Number, one, number four, look for incompetence. Next verse. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Uh, it appears that the other one was, uh, is John, who's writing this gospel. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, or Cephas, which means Peter, or in, in Greek, or rock in English. You'll be called rock, Peter, Andrew, and John, he's found these disciples, and, and check this out, they are all rural fishermen. Yet Jesus chooses them to lead the invasion of the world. You see, each of them would score very low on these My Life scorecards that we did last week. Extremely low. And yet Jesus chooses them, incompetent. When Jesus finally does pick a fellow that seems competent to us, he then manifests before him in resurrected glory on the road to Damascus. With holy fire and blinding light, Jesus burns away all of his false competency. And St. Paul writes, who is competent for these things? In Philippians 3.18, talking about his My Life scorecard, he says it's worth scubula. Scubula is Greek for crap. It's crap. So look for incompetence and number five, expect God's competence. Expect the blood of Jesus to 
show up on that My Life scorecard. Expect grace to manifest in the midst of failure. You know, Peter really failed, and yet Jesus still said, on this rock I will build my church. Jesus was perfect, but none of us are perfect. So don't wait for the perfect person to disciple you. And don't wait to be perfect before you're willing to disciple someone else. You see, I think Jesus expects us to disciple each other. So the Jesus in you disciples another. And the Jesus in the other disciples you. What matters is that you get close enough to hear the heartbeat. Two years ago on a Saturday, I was tried on the floor of the Presbytery of the West. It was perhaps the most difficult moment of my life. In front of my friends, family, church, and peers, they read the result of this vote, the verdict. In that moment, 15 years of ministry, hundreds and hundreds of relationships, and my My Life scorecard all just got literally shot to hell. And in that moment, right at that moment, unscripted in front of all those people, my friend Andrew just grabbed my head and held it, held me silently to his heart. My head just pressed into his kolpas, his bosom. I've thought of that millions of times since that moment. For in that moment, I think I was being discipled by Jesus the Christ, the heartbeat of the great rabbi in my brother Andrew's chest. Look for incompetence and expect God's competence. Number six, dream God's dreams for the people in this room. Jesus says, you're Simon, but I'm calling you Rock. Jesus knew Peter would deny him in fear, but he calls him the rock and turns him into a rock. God has a dream for Peter. He has one dream for Peter, and he's got another dream for John. And so that's number seven. Dream God's dreams for individual people, unique people. We're not all the same, and we're not all supposed to be the same. Peter's called the rock, and John is known as the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That doesn't mean he didn't love the others, but that's what John wanted his identity to be, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But you know, when Peter first met John, remember what he called him? Son of thunder, thunder boy. Because you see, John was into apocalyptic superhero kind of stuff. In Luke 9, he wants to cast fire down on an entire Samaritan village. Fire and thunder. But Jesus showed John what real fire and real thunder was. The, the fire falls on Samaritans. It does, but it falls as the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. The thunder is the revelation of Jesus, the love of God poured out, love that is true fire, apocalyptic fire, the real stuff. So Thunderboy calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loves. That's his identity. That's real fire, real thunder. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we, we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarene, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Number eight, don't be easily offended. 
If you believe the gospel, there is no you, no ego left to offend. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, well, come and see, check it out. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do, you, how do you know me? Did you get that? Jesus compliments Nathanael and Nathanael says, Well, how, how do you know me? I mean, Nathanael's kind of an egotistic jerk, don't you think? But Jesus celebrates his honesty. Even his honesty about his illusions. And that's number nine, celebrate honesty. Because then you can wrestle the lies out of people the way the God-man wrestled the lies out of Jacob and named him Israel. Remember, Jacob Israel stole the blessing from his firstborn brother through deceit. It was the self-deceit of Israel that kept most Jews from coming to Jesus, the firstborn. Verse 48. How do you know me, Nathanael said. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree. Now the fig tree is a symbol for Israel. Remember, nothing's happening by accident. A symbol for the old covenant. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to, him, to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels, the messengers of God, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, that's what happens to Jacob, right? To Israel at Bethel in Genesis 28. Jesus is the new Israel. And his 12 disciples are like his 12 sons, like the 12 tribes. Israel invaded the promised land, but now you see the promised land is invading the people of Israel. And through this new Israel, invading the whole earth. In other words, the kingdom of heaven really is at hand. And the ladder down which it comes is the cross of Christ. And it invades this world through his people, his disciples. So you see, this list is my 12 steps for invading the world, which is also 12 steps for making disciples, which is also 12 steps uh, for invading a human heart. Jesus invades the world from the inside out through the power of his spirit that conquers hearts. But you see, our problem is that we only know how to invade from the outside in through the firepower of this world, which is utterly powerless over hearts. You realize Jesus was crucified because he refused to lead a Zionist re revolution, a revolution against Rome in order to establish an independent Jewish homeland. Jesus was crucified because he refused, he just refused to invade from the outside in. So they crucified him. And he invaded from the inside out as planned with fire, his spirit and his disciples, the Logos incarnates, his, his blood in, in our meat, beating to the rhythm of his father's heart. Well, John spends five chapters toward the end of his gospel 
describing Jesus last night, the night he was betrayed. In chapter 13, we read the following. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. See, that's Thunderboy. That's the Apostle John, who wanted to call down fire on all of his enemies. The great rabbi is holding his head silently against his heart. His head is resting on the kolpas, the bosom of the Lord. And so that's number 10. Let them hear your heartbeat. And number 11, let them feel your heartbreak. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. You know that morsel was saved for the guest of honor? Someone whom the great rabbi dearly loved? You see, John felt the Lord's heart break for Judas and for all humanity. Then number 12, let them watch you die. Sometimes a body has to be broken for a heart to be revealed. In Greek, apocalypsis. Well, this is Jesus, his mother, and John.
And that's how God invades the world, destroys the work of the evil one, and makes all things new. His body is broken, revealing his heart, which bleeds fire. <laughs> and so on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. If you want him, if you want to follow him, come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. There'll be two stations. The light cup is juice. The dark cup is wine. And they're both the blood of the Father moving to the rhythm of his heart in your veins. So, Jesus, we thank you for leaving your throne above and invading our world and going walking in our world. And just as you went walking in Peter, James, John, Andrew's world, you went walking in our world. Maybe it was in the form of a camp director, father, brother, sister, mother, friend, the form of the people in this room, but you went walking in our world and you found us. And now, Lord God, would you give us your courage to go walking in other people's word, worlds and would you, the word, find them through us? Thank you, Father, that you have chosen to invade this world from the inside out. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so what I'm saying is, Disciple each other, okay? Um, and I can't script that for you. Can't give you a notebook or what. I mean, I could, but it wouldn't be the real deal. Disciple each other. Hang out together and talk word. And that doesn't even mean, hello, brother, or what do you think of John 4, 37? It means love God and love the people you're with, and God will work through you because his spirit is in you. I saw you come up to this table with just a mustard seed of faith, and Jesus said, if you ask your father for the spirit, he's not gonna give you a stone. He will give you the spirit. The spirit is within you. What I'm trying to say is you have the mojo. I mean, I don't know if that works for you, but... Um, you have the mojo, and Satan has convinced you that he's stolen the mojo, but he hasn't. Uh, Jesus the Christ is within you. So disciple each other, hang out together, love each other, because Jesus is at work in you. In other words, believe the gospel. Amen.